Welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. I'm Megan Erickson, graduate student and affiliate of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. On today's episode, I will be hosting a discussion with Dr. David Skarbek. He is associate professor in the Department of Political Science and the Political Theory Project at Brown University. His research examines how extralegal governance institutions form, operate, and evolve. His first book, The Social Order of the Underworld, How Prison Gangs Govern the American Penal System, won APSA's William Riker Award for the Best Book in Political Economy and the Outstanding Book Award from the International Association for the Study of Organized Crime. His new book, The Puzzle of Prison Order, Why Life Behind Bars Varies Around the World, came out just last year and has received the Outstanding Book Award from the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences. And we're happy to have him here today. So welcome to the podcast, and we're we're excited to have you. Thank you, Megan. I'm delighted to be in conversation with you. Great, thank you. So today we'll be focusing mostly on your recent book. Um, I'm really excited to speak with you about this. But first, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your earlier research, and in particular about your first book and your inspiration for asking these these kinds of questions. So um, I guess first of all, can you tell me a bit? of background to how you kind of came to study prison gangs. So it's obviously definitely a a fascinating topic. And yet the first thing that comes to mind when I think about incarceration isn't necessarily um, prison gangs. Yeah, so that's a fair question. Um, Since I was an undergraduate, I've been uh, very concerned and focused on understanding mass incarceration in the United States. And that's been something that's been sort of a priority for me. Uh, growing up in California, um, the the prison gangs are prominent enough that it would be you know sort of reasonable to learn about them if you're just reading the news and sort of paying attention to current events. And so when I went to grad school, I had a sort of interest in uh, the criminal justice system and you know a little bit of curiosity about the gangs. When I was uh, taking a class um, on uh, in public choice theory, we were looking at Uh, economic models of political constitution. So how can we explain why they are organized the the way that they are and why do they vary across different countries? And in writing a paper for that class, I was searching for a topic and I remembered that one of the prison gangs um, in California had a pretty extensive written constitution. It has, you know, sort of the preamble and articles and sections and it was a document that very much did, you know, constitute the gang. It, it, it outlined what the gang, uh, its purpose was. It, it outlined different positions of authority with different responsibilities. It outlined systems of checks and balances and elections. And so in that paper, I basically tried to apply tools from constitutional political economy to this uh, sort of criminal constitution. And I, I thought it was just a really fun, fascinating sort of crossover, bringing theories from political economy to a topic that's not usually examined with those tools. So I wrote one paper that, you know, wrote, you know, raised and answered a question about how gangs organize internally, but it raised a bunch of other questions like why do they exist in some prisons and not others? And what are the consequences of these gangs being um, active? And so I just have sort of followed these questions as they've come up um, from writing one paper to the next. Right. Yeah. Thank you. That that makes a lot of sense. And that's thing, just kind of like seeing this happen and being like, well, how can we start to make sense of what's actually going on here? So like you say, your first book focuses on the prison system in the, the United States. Can you tell me what this tells us about prison gangs then and, and in what ways they manifest in places like L.A., for example? Yeah, I think that um, one of the main insights from what I discovered in writing the first book is that when prisons are relatively small, 
prisoners can usually rely pretty well on informal mechanisms of social control like gossip, ostracism, and shame. And in small prison environments, um, it's easy to know other people's reputations and gossiping or ostracizing someone is sort of a painful experience. It's a painful social sanction. And so what I discovered is that in California, the prison system that existed there for more than a hundred years and no gangs like the gangs that exist today and dominate the everyday life of prisoners existed in, in, in those prisons. Instead, prisoners relied on these sort of informal mechanisms to sort of govern their social and economic interactions. Uh, the second, I think, important thing that I learned is that um, these gangs form in response to changes in the size of the prison population, as well as the diversity of the prison population. So when the prison population starts to increase in the 1950s and 60s, these informal reputation-based mechanisms start to fail. Um, the, the archival evidence shows that there's increasing conflict among prisoners, there's increasing race writing and increase in stabbings. And so I sort of interpret this as um, the result of a failure of the system that used to work well, but no longer could work. That's when gangs form basically in response to increasing chaos and without the ability to rely on either officials or things like gossip and ostracism to facilitate order. In the context of Los Angeles is, is a fascinating one to me. Um, because we typically think of people who are incarcerated as contained and often constrained. Um, the prison gang that controls the jails in Southern California, however, they've leveraged their control of the county jail system there. And they've, they've sort of, you know, they, they've reached outside of the prison, so to speak, and, and they can control street gangs throughout Los Angeles County. Uh, the basic relationship is that the Mexican mafia says, um, if these street gangs don't pay us a share of their drug revenues, they call them uh, gang taxes or drug taxes, then when those individuals or any member of their street gang are incarcerated in the jails, because the Mexican mafia controls them, um, they can threaten to harm them. So they use the credible threat of future violence to induce compliance from street gangs today, who then send them a substantial amount of money uh, on the regular basis. That's really interesting. Thank you. So you say it's this idea, at least in Los Angeles, that some of these gangs could reach outside of the prison and control gangs on the street. Kind of given that, I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about the life cycle of a prisoner in the system. So like, say if I were to go to prison without any kind of prior affiliation with gangs, what should I expect, you know, in the first couple of days that I'm there and, and when I get out? Yeah, and maybe just to sort of note that this sort of inside controlling the outside dynamic, it, it's not just, you know, in existence in Los Angeles, it's, it's in Northern California, it's in Texas, it's in New York, it's in Maryland. So we see this common um, source of entrenched control in the prisons exerting that power um, in many places in the country. Um, in terms of the life cycle of a prisoner, uh, there are no gangs in women's prisons in California like those that exist in men's prisons. So um, mm -hmm. female prisoners are not gonna become um, affiliated with entrenched groups. They don't typically uh, segregate themselves strictly along racial or ethnic lines. In men's prisons, it's completely the opposite. The gangs uh, control just about every aspect of a person's day-to-day -day life. There are strict uh, racial um, and ethnic segregations or strict rules about what people of one ethnicity can do or interact with a member of a different ethnicity. 
And even with no street gang or prison gang affiliation, all prisoners are expected to uh, go along with this um, gang-governed, uh, racially uh, salient um, system of rules and orders. So all people have to go along with the rules that the gangs create along racial and ethnic lines. Typically, a prisoner um, will be approached by uh, maybe one of the gang leaders or sometimes called shot callers um, that is in charge of the gang associated with a particular race or ethnicity. And that shot caller will come and explain, you know, these are the rules about where you can be, who you can eat with, um, you know, basically run down what's expected of a new prisoner in terms of in terms of living day to day in a way that's not inconsistent with these racially based gang rules. Now, some prisoners um, want to do more than be sort of passive participants in the system. Um, technically, those passive participants are affiliates of the gang. If they leave the prison and are reincarcerated at some point, they'll be expected to reaffiliate with that particular gang. But some prisoners want to be sort of more active uh, participants. You know, I sort of think of this as like, you know, made members of the prison gang. And this is a far smaller proportion of people who are incarcerated. Uh, but for these individuals, um, engaging in criminal activities that generate money, um, carrying out violence for the gang, gaining access to illicit substances and drugs that can be trafficked into the facility. These are ways to sort of raise your status in the eyes of sort of full on prison gang members. And if they put in enough work, um, some of these people will be accepted into the gang as you know, sort of full and active members. Now, a difference here is that when somebody who's only a passive participant in this gang activity leaves the prison, he's not expected to do work for the gang on the outside. His obligations have ended. But for a full, this higher level of prison gang member, once released, they're expected to keep working for the gang, committing crimes and violence for the gang, collecting taxes for the gang. So that's a sort of higher, for, more involved level of gang affiliation. And of course, um, some of these people um, age out of gangs. You're not technically allowed to leave a gang, but uh, they, they'll physically leave an area that the gang controls. Some of them um, are killed in gang violence and some continue to be active prison gang participants uh, late, late into life. So it sounds like kind of these exit options are, are a bit difficult, right? Especially I, even like when you, when you kind of leave the prison, like you said, like perhaps certain affiliations won't really remain, but you're still kind of um, tied to it in certain ways. And especially if there's kind of this case where um, you go back in the prison. Yeah, I mean, so many of the gangs, you know, to, 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 to be accepted in that higher level of membership, you know, you're supposed to swear an oath, they, you know, blood in, blood out, which is that I'm going to spill the blood of an enemy to earn my way into the gang. And the only way out is through my own death, right? You know, and, you know, that's not, that's not uh, an enforceable contract, obviously. And so lots of people do leave gangs. But um, depending on how they do so, they may be actively targeted or sought out. They, 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 they can move to, you know, what are called sort of uh, protective custody yards where they're supposed to be safe from gangs. But depending on how they left, um, gang members may actively attempt to get people to assault and sometimes even kill people who have left these gangs. This is actually part of the argument I made in, in this first paper that I, I was mentioning, which is that uh, gangs face the same problem that states do that Madison identifies in the Federalist Papers, which is that 
If we want to empower a government that's strong enough to protect our rights, we need to establish credible ways to limit that power from being used to violate our rights. And so I argued in that first paper that this gang's constitution uh, did just that. It, it, it empowered a gang that was very powerful, but in order to recruit new members, they had to have credible claims of constraint on how they'd use that power against their members. And so that's where we see, given that you can't leave, this, this threat of predation is especially um, um, dangerous, right? You can't just exit from that interaction at very low cost. And so that's my argument for part of the reason why they, uh, these gangs actually have such extensive constitutional constraints uh, within them. Right. Yeah, that that analogy was it absolutely makes sense, because like you were saying before, these constitutions very much govern kind of the the behavior of all these members. So you you obviously in your first book and in these papers, you open this black box and you kind of shed light on the fact that these gangs obviously exist in the American system. And there's absolute reason and logic behind it. And we're not we're obviously not just seeing thugs carrying out heinous forms of violence all the time. And in your second book, you go beyond examining the American system and you broaden the scope. So what I first wanted to talk about um, was the, the opening of your book. So speaking of analogies, I guess, with the state, you open with this analogy talking about Darwin going to the Galapagos. So could you explain the analogy here a bit? Well, in the popular telling of Darwin, he goes to the Galapagos Islands and observes the fact that there's this fairly tightly clustered set of islands, but the beaks of finches across these different islands uh, vary a great deal in size, shape, and strength. And he basically comes to the conclusion in this popular telling that their beaks are specifically evolved to, get to, to best access the particular um, uh, bugs and nuts on the, each particular island. And so there's a lot of variation in the beaks, but there's an explanation for why those beaks are well suited to the place that they are. In my book, I'm trying to argue that prison social order varies in a tremendous number of ways, but we can understand the logic of this variation, that the social order that emerges is in response to the local conditions, the local ecology, if you will, of the prison in which these people are operating. Right, yeah. The analogy is like really clever and helpful helpful for me to start thinking about the kind of questions that you're asking. So, so like you said in this book, you're looking at prison systems around the world and you kind of tackle this massive question of how and why does life behind bars differ across these different cases? Um, so kind of through this analogy, you say that this is a study of institutional diversity um, could you explain that a little bit more and what it means for governance and these, these, like you said, kind of like disparate ecologies? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, the, probably the two biggest influences in uh, my academic work are Doug North and Eleanor Ostrom. And so Eleanor Ostrom studied the institutional diversity of responses to common pool resources. And she found that they varied a lot. Some were successful, some failed of the successful ones. They varied in their characteristics, um, but there were certain principles that she discerned, certain patterns that she discerned about which ones were sort of more successful at overcoming common pool resource problems and others that were less so. So I'm trying to sort of do a little of the same, a little comparative institutional analysis. And I'm interested in you know, the informal institutions in prisons. I prefer the term extra legal institutions. And what I noticed in my sort of readings of prison social order is that in some places, prisoners have a tremendous influence 
on how a prison is run, on the people who live there and the people who work there. In other prisons, it seems like the, the prisoners don't have a lot of solidarity. They don't engage in collective action. They don't influence um, you know, everyday life like in the other prisons I studied. And so I wanted to understand that better. Likewise, uh, I noticed in sort of reading the literature that uh, sometimes, like I mentioned, there's sort of very decentralized ways of having an influence, things like gossip and ostracism. There are not particular people in charge. There are not written rules. There are not elections. There's not um, people put into specific positions to monitor for rule infractions and punish them when they occur. Very decentralized settings. But in others, there's a lot of centralization. Prisoners invest in creating committees. They uh, have elections. They engage in collective action. In they create structures. And so I'm basically that's the diversity that I'm trying to explain. Why the informal life just it looks so different. And to me, it's very striking because. Prisons, by definition and practice, are incredibly uh, similar institutions. They're very unique, a very specific institution. And the ways in which they're unique and similar are things that theoretically we should think should matter. So there's a selection effect in that prisons all hold people who are charged with or convicted of crimes. There's a selection bias that they come from, uh, disproportionately so, from disadvantaged socioeconomic and minority communities. When forced, when in prison, they're forced to interact with other people. So you can't choose who you're playing a, you know, a prisoner's dilemma with, so to speak. And there's no exit options. And so each one of those, when I put my sort of institutional analysis and game theory hat on, should have a big influence on whether um, interactions are, are positive, zero or negative sum ones. And that's all prison basically fit those descriptions. And, and yet nevertheless, tremendous amount of informal uh, institutions in, in diversity. And so that's basically the goal of the book is why so much informal institutional diversity given how fundamentally similar prisons uh, around the world are. Right, thank you, that, that makes a lot of sense. You kind of alluded to these different outcomes more or less. So, you know, we could see significant differences in influence and in centralization and cohesion and also kind of the kinds of games that are played to like you know like you say positive zero negative some games and so on and in your book you seem to kind of draw these or construct these broad categories of expected outcomes um, for your governance argument so it's really fascinating because you draw on several cases that substantiate your claim and demonstrate some of the predictions of the the governance theory that you develop so i'm wondering if you could take me through these these cases perhaps Sure. Um, the book's broken down into two pieces, basically. In the first part, I, I ask why, um, you know, who, who governs the prison, basically. And so I wanted to select some extreme cases. And so I look at one extreme case in Latin America in a Bolivian prison where prison officials have uh, essentially no presence within the interior of the prison. They prevent people from escaping they regulate who enters and leaves the prison, but they are not a regular important uh, presence or influence within inside the prison. And so my argument essentially is that if prison officials don't provide resources, effective administration, and high quality governance institutions, then there's some gap in demand that's not being met from the prisoner's perspective 
that under the right conditions, they'll attempt to fill in that gap. So when officials don't govern, there's scope for prisoners to govern more. And so what I found in that prison is that there is an extensive system of sort of quasi-political, economic, and civil society um, institutions that are entirely homegrown, uh, that are endogenous, that are formed from the active response of prisoners. The other extreme is I go and look at Nordic countries where prison officials have provided substantial resources. They have a very effective uh, administration of these facilities and they provide um, relative to other prisons, very high quality governance institutions. And so my argument is that when officials govern well, there's much less need for prisoners to uh, replicate the same efforts that officials are carrying out fairly effectively for themselves. So I'm trying to look at these two cases and, and they're both um, studying the mechanisms in operation when the state is present and when the state is absent. And then I look at a third case there and it's, it's essentially a case study in failure. It's the um, Andersonville prisoner of war camp which was in operation during the last 15 months of the American Civil War. And it's a, it's a case study in failure because you know, the, the argument isn't that if the state doesn't govern prisoners you know, obviously will or easily will. Um, in, in the case at Andersonville, prison officials like in the Bolivian prison provided uh, very low quality governance institutions and, and shockingly few resources, but there was no response by the prisoners um, in the face of this destitution. They didn't produce extra legal institutions to improve their situations. And so I wanted to sort of understand what led to sort of failure in that case, but not the Bolivian case. Um, you know, the Andersonville case is, is interesting. It, it's historically, it, it's, it's, a, it's in a historical setting. So it's unlike most of the other cases in my book, but it's very similar to this Bolivian prison in a few key ways. Um, it, it, they're, they're both places where prison officials had almost no presence within the facility. In both prisons, they were provided incredibly few resources. At both prisons, prisoners had free movement uh, within the prison. And in each, each of these, so, so what I'm arguing is that institutionally speaking, these are very similar cases, even though sort of historically and geographically speaking, they're somewhat different institutions. And so what I found or argued in the Andersonville case is that we didn't see a response of a flourishing of extra legal governance institutions primarily because there were no benefits to capture by producing them. The utter poverty in the prison meant that property crime was um, not possible because there was very few resources to, to, to try to take. Violent crime was very uncommon because people were so uh, in such poor health. There was little energy to, you know, to assault, to, to fight with others. And because at Andersonville, they were essentially in a, a dirt field and they had no access to outside resources as the prisoners in Bolivia did. Uh, so there was no gains from exchange. There was no reason to create market institutions to facilitate exchange if there was no exchange that could be realized once those were created. And so this lack of official governance isn't offset by flourishing extra legal governance. It falls flat because prisoners have no reason to invest in institutions because of the destitution uh, that they were living in. Right, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, like, as I was reading this, I kind of had a question just about that, about your case selection for this Andersonville case. Like, it's it's absolutely fascinating. And when I think of prisons, um, for some reason, prisoner of war camps don't really come to mind. 
And that's probably my bias, um, which makes your book such an interesting read, just, you know, one of the many reasons. So to kind of just follow up on that, do we see any instances of complete disorder, I guess, in prisons today, like we saw with this um, Andersonville prison camp case? Well, I think that the, the total failure that we saw at Andersonville was leading up to a point where it was simply going to be closed down. So to the extent that we don't see that happening very often, I think it's because they can't persist. And so in the middle of the, in the, middle of the summer, um, there was tremendous overcrowding in this prison. There was you know, a high of 33,000 or so prisoners at its peak. And you know, the, the, the horrible problems resulting as a consequence of that was observed. The misery of the prisoners and the incredibly high fatality rate, all of these things sent very clear signals that this prison is not working out, that it needs to be shut down. And so they started shipping thousands of prisoners per day to uh, camps in other, other locations. And so in that same sort of, um, that same way of thinking is that I don't think that uh, a system can fail so badly and stay in operation. And so we don't see examples like that uh, very often. There is you know, the opposite question to ask as well, which is are prisoner of war camps ever you know, they ever turn out better than Andersonville? And the, the answer is yes, most of them typically did. Um, uh, mo most, of the, most of those POW camp experiences were far better than Andersonville. One of the earliest ethnographies of a prisoner of war camps uh, is by an economist named R.A. Radford. And it studies uh, a World War II um, German POW camp based on his incarceration there when he was a member of the military. And what's fascinating is that this economist or, you know, who, someone who would become an economist documents essentially the forces of supply and demand emerging and facilitating um, sharing and exchange of resources. He identifies um, entrepreneurs working across sections of the camp uh, to equilibrate prices across the camp. Uh, and, and then that, that's sort of an example of uh, soldiers incarcerated, and it's the sort of happiest possible outcome in, in terms of um, prison officials are providing um, some security. The Red Cross is providing endowments on a regular basis in the form of economic resources for prisoners. And then markets take over and facilitate the sort of sorting of a standard set from the Red Cross, um, breaking that down and, and shipping to uh, and, and coordinating to other prisoners those items that they most like and getting rid of those things they most disliked. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And um, like you were saying as well, it seems like this, the Andersonville case um, was really telling just to the point that um, they order didn't kind of emerge because they didn't necessarily have anything to gain. And kind of comparing that to say the California case and the other cases that you discuss in um, your more recent book, um, I'm wondering kind of to what extent does the economy of the outside environment matter? So to the, ex the extent to which they could actually kind of leverage what's available in these regions or in these cities or um, local economies even? Yeah, I think it matters a lot. Um, you know, if a country, it, it, you know, if a government doesn't have the resources to provide, um, you know, sort of basic, you know, human rights level, you know, goods and services and amenities to prisoners, then, you know, that's going to be a problem. Um, you know, a place like California conceivably has the resources to do much better, but, you know, partly for political reasons, it's not willing to. 
you know, there's a lot of conversation about whether we have anything to learn from prisons in the Nordic countries. And, you know, they're able to provide a level of amenity and service uh, that is far, far greater than, say, what they do in California and significantly more so than in many Latin American countries. Um, but they're rich. They come from uh, a fairly homogenous um, uh, demographic that's willing uh, very much across the board to invest in uh, public programs um, that, um, you, know, pro you know, providing, you know, strong welfare nets and, and support. And, you know, the, the correctional view in the Nordic countries is very much focused on rehabilitation. And the public in general thinks prison should be for rehabilitation, whereas in the United States and even more so in Latin America, it's seen to be a tool of retribution, uh, of punishment. And then, you know, finally one, you know, sort of, you know, more political institution aspect is that um, laws in many of the Nordic countries have to go through a committee at, that has members who are criminologists and who tend to view prisons as potentially dangerous, as being um, seen not as, as, as not desirable for retributive reasons and therefore requiring a lot of resources. So general wealth of a country matters, but it's clear that culture and politics matter a great deal as well in determining sort of why some countries invest in high quality institutions and others don't. So obviously there's just so much variance that we have here and you present these, I guess, three or four cases to kind of show, like you're saying, these extreme ends. And, you know, I bet there's just like so many, so many, um, so many different like variations among these uh, different ends of the spectrum. And so like you said, like in the beginning of the book or for the first part of the book, you kind of show us that, yes, there there is a lot of variance in prison orders. And we see that kind of variation across these really rich case studies. And then after that, you you begin to tell us or you tell us um, how these prisoners actually govern. So you draw on three examples to kind of further test this governance theory. Um, so you you draw on a women's prison in California and a men's or in men's prisons in England and Wales and also gay and um, transgender units in LA County. So I'm wondering if you could tell me, I guess, first of all, just the logic behind choosing these three cases in particular. Sure, so, uh, you know, the cases are chosen um, based on variation in the explanatory variables in my theory. Um, the theory is a variant of one from the 1980s when Doug North is trying to explain European state formation. And he essentially makes these arguments that when populations grow large and diverse, transactions costs rise, so we invest in centralized states. Likewise, I'm very much a Kosian, and Ronald Coase argues that we stop relying spontaneously in markets when the transaction costs of doing so rise, and so we invest in the centralization of firms. So the variation in transactions costs is what drove my interest in looking at these particular cases. As an aside, uh, they're also not cherry picked in the sense that these studies that I look at, in particular prisons that I look at, are representative of prisons in those prison systems generally. Um, and so each chapter is basically looking at a different way that transactions costs can be low enough that prisoners don't invest in gangs. So in the first case, the case of women's prisons over time, um, they've always had relatively small prison populations. So in California, while we see this radical change from no gangs to gangs being entrenched, um, it's stability in women's prisons. They've always been small. 
low transaction costs means they don't have to invest in these centralized gangs. And so they typically are based on just individual standing in the community. And to some degree, you know, what they call um, play families or prison families, little fictive kinships um, around which they sort of uh, base their social life. So when prisons are small, transactions costs are low and we don't observe gangs there. The second case looks at men's prisons in England. And I, I, again, make a similar argument, which is that not only do they tend to have small prisons, usually about 20% of the size of the typical prison in California, but they also have uh, about 120 prisons instead of about 30 prisons. So these prisons are spread throughout the country, throughout the population in England and Wales. And that means that when you go to prison, uh, they have a correctional philosophy is send people to prisons close to their home so that they can maintain healthy relationships with family and friends. But what that means is that when you get to prison, it's very likely that other people from your town will also be in the prison. And so there's a pre-prison social network that you can sort of rely on or turn to. That is when you show up, your reputation is already known. Um, because you're interacting with people who may know your family back home, your reputation is being observed uh, indirectly by people um, back home who you care about. And when you leave prison, you know that they're going to they're going to leave prisons too. And so you'll, you'll see them in the future. And so each one of these pre-prison social networks expands the audience to a person's actions and expands the time frame for that set of interactions. And so just through sort of basic, you know, game theory logic, right? Like the folk theorem, the longer our interaction, you know, the more I can benefit from making it a positive one. And so that is the reason why we don't see gangs emerging there. In the final case, it's this unique case of, of a gay and transgender housing unit in Los Angeles. It's a controversial uh, facility for a variety of reasons, but one of which is that the deputies in charge of that facility have a interview um, that, they, that they carry out with people who request to be housed there. And the, the goal of the interview from their perspective is to identify if the inmate is genuinely living a gay lifestyle or not, or maybe he's trying to um, sneak into this unit maybe to, to victimize people. And as a result of that selection process, it turns out that um, the, the similarity, the shared culture, the shared worldview, the lived experiences um, are far more similar in this housing unit than they are in just the general population housing unit in the county jail. And so they can draw on these shared uh, cultural and lived experiences in order to facilitate cooperation. So to sort of summarize, like, you know, my first book was about gangs and their operation in prisons and the street. This book is more about prisons that don't have gangs and trying to explain why that's the case. And so it's, it's basically that, focusing on transactions costs. Right. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense, um, especially framed that way. So like, I feel like kind of through these examples, I was able to like really see exactly how prisons are kind of just like states in a way, at least these ones are um, on a much on a much like smaller scale, obviously. And it sounds like, you know, like like you're saying absent formal constitutions, these informal norms and interactions govern just as strongly. And so then that's kind of why we don't see um, gangs manifest where um, where we do elsewhere. Yeah, I think it, if in sort of reading across what I've learned in the two books, there's sort of a few possibilities is you can rely on decentralized mechanisms. You can, re you can rely on um, government 
institutions. And you can also rely on sort of centralized but extra legal institutions. And so, you know, if we look around the world, these extra legal but centralized institutions tend to be in places that don't have strong effective states, but whose community is large and diverse enough that they can't rely on reputations. And so what I have in mind in particular is like clan-based societies. We see clan-based societies historically and in places in the world today that fit that description well. And that also seems to explain where the gangs emerge. They emerge in places that are relatively large and diverse, but where for most things that are important, prisoners can't rely on high quality official governance. That's where you get sort of clan-based or gang-based social organization. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess I'm, I'm also curious about just like kind of on a very broad level, obviously, I'm curious about what you think this all means. So like, given the variation that we see in governance and how prisoners govern, I wonder if you'd be able to say if this is like good or bad, as in like, do you think that, that the order that certain prisons and certain prisoners impose through gangs is better than the alternative, which is perhaps very weak um, formal um, governance and order through the, the officials, um, or is it bad and does it lead to more feuds and illicit activity, or is it you know just, just neither and we can't really say any, or we can't really make any normative claim claim here. Yeah, I, well, I think we can say something. I, I, it's clear that prisons run by gangs is not anyone's ideal of how prisons should be run. I think it's probably true uh, to a large degree that prisons run um, by prisoners in extra legal ways that are not gangs is probably not ideal either. There's probably some normative principle that demands that if we choose to incarcerate someone, there's some basic level of resources and support that they should be given. Um, the question of gangs is interesting, is that some people misinterpreted my book to argue that gangs were a good thing. And my argument was really just that if the gangs, if the gang structure that controls social and economic interactions was removed at the snap of a finger, then, and there was not some alternative change, if there wasn't smaller prisons or more official governance, then it would lead to the sort of conflict that we saw when decentralized governance failed in the 1960s. And so relative to an outcome where the gangs have no control, the gangs are an improvement on social order, but the gangs are a very costly way to accomplish that social order. We know that um, gang membership reduces recidivism. We know that you know, the gangs are very successful at trafficking drugs into the underground economy in prisons, which is good for many prisoners, but it's obviously uh, not what we uh, want to be happening in prisons. Um, gangs also, you know, in some ways have you know, no, no, no accountability, no, there are no institutions that are robust that prisoners can appeal to outside of the gang system to sort of keep account of gang activity. So, you know, the gangs are, are, uh, are the a second best um, response to a situation where states have um, given up or lost um, their ability to provide the order. You know, I, I usually, you know, the, the response isn't again to entrench gang power. It's if people join gangs for safety, the response should be to make prisons safer so people don't have to. If people turn to gangs for illicit substances, we should think about which, which substances are, should be illicit or not. So cigarettes, for example, are not allowed in California prisons, I believe for public health reasons, but now we funnel significant uh, resources and profits to gangs who are the experts at supplying cigarettes in the underground economy. So um, they're the, I think, somewhat predictable uh, consequence 
of certain state choices and we could alleviate some of the cost for them if the state ran prisons differently. Right. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. You know, not to misinterpret your first book and not saying that gangs are great (laughs) by any means, but also just kind of saying that, well, they could, you know, be helpful in certain ways. And what's the risk of um, kind of pulling the rug out? And you're kind of speaking a bit earlier about what we could learn from the Nordic example as well. So it just kind of brings me to another broad question, um, which is what what lessons can we learn from your findings in terms of policy and perhaps even being able to change some some corrupt systems? Well, I mean, I, I think that the most straightforward you know, suggestions are smaller prisons are safer, they're easier for officials to control, and in smaller prisons, uh, the people living in prisons can more easily rely on decentralized mechanisms based on people's reputations. So smaller prisons are better. I think if you built 100 prisons in California and sent people to the prisons close to their home, the gangs would lose a tremendous amount of the power that they have right now. That's partly because people could then rely on pre-prison social networks, but it's also because with only 34, 35 prisons in California at the moment, it's easier for the gangs to control each of the prisons because they're not as spread out. There's 135 prisons. It'd be very difficult for you know essentially seven or eight main gangs to control what's going on in all of those different facilities. More broadly, I'd say that the United States uses prisons far too much. It incarcerates far too many people on any consequentialist uh, grounds. So when we think about why we use prisons, I think we should, we, should, we should think of using prisons as ways to reduce the cost of crime. And we should recognize that the best way to reduce the cost of crime are deterring crimes from taking place in the first place. Because when we deter crime, we not only save the cost of victimization, but the cost of punishment. Prisons don't deter crime very effectively. So some of the dollars that we put into criminal justice questions to deter crime uh, should be going to other things, uh, possibly more policing, um, certainly more social programs and less in prison. So my basic, I think the evidence in regardless of sort of how you parse it points in the direction that we should use prison far, far less uh, than we do now. And one advantage of doing so is that I think that would reduce the control that um, gangs and groups like them have um, in some of our biggest prison systems. I think that's just a great takeaway from reading this book and like you said, your first one as well, <laughs> like the steps that we could take to kind of like, like obviously not get rid of these gangs by any means, but take the power away from them or make it more difficult, I guess, for them to, to kind of have this power and influence. Yeah, it's, um, about, it's, about, it's about changing the conditions that are fertile for the emergence and growth of gangs. You know, gangs don't exist because there are bad people in prison, right? Like air quotes, there's always been bad people in prisons or violent people in prisons. They exist because of other factors, right? They exist not because there's a supply of gang members, but because there's the demand for what they provide. So yeah, we, we, we should think about how to change the conditions that seem ripe for, you know, gangs to become a very important phenomenon. I mean, so this is like all just just fascinating. And I'm really happy that you're able to come chat chat with me about it today. So this book was obviously like a, a massive <laughs> undertaking, I bet. And it's really cool in a way that it it was released in the midst of the pandemic, I guess, because like for me, at least it was so engaging um, and it could really just kind of take my mind off of what's going on in the world for a bit. And it was also just beautifully written and so rich in both theory and the stories that you tell through these case studies. So it was, um, yeah, like I said, it was just absolutely fascinating. Just even in these like 
obviously, you know, like COVID times and like election times and stuff like that. Um, I guess you're pretty busy still. So I'm just curious, like now that this book is published, do you have any other projects that are in the pipeline at the moment? Well, I'm starting to do a little bit of work on um, the relationship between extra legal governance, violence, and citizens' use of extrajudicial violence. Um, so I've got a paper uh, on um, lynchings in Brazil. Brazil is a place that experiences um, estimated uh, one lynching per every day or two days. So in the world today, this is they're experiencing this vigilantism uh, at maybe the highest rate of any country. And so um, my colleague Danilo Friere and I are conducting some survey experiments to better understand people's attitudes about lynchings in Brazil. And, you know, he's Brazilian. And, and when we started discussing this topic, I was suspicious or, or skeptical that people would have strong, positive beliefs and opinions about uh, lynchings in, in Brazil. And he assured me that they would. And the initial results from our study is, is finding that, yes, very much people do have strong uh, beliefs about um, when lynching is justified, um, which types of crimes are more or less justified in um, engaging in lynching activity. And we have a, a little information prompt as well that we try to figure out how we can reduce support for lynching. Uh, so we're, we're basically just at the sort of initial stage of trying to understand uh, vigilantism in Latin America. And our second project is gonna look at police violence and human rights in Chile and trying to better understand that relationship between sort of public sector use of violence uh, in, in the community. That's really fascinating. Thank you. Um, I mean, I guess a bit like somber, <laughs> but yeah, I bet it's just kind of difficult researching at times, but uh, really important to examine. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that when it comes out. So um, yeah, I'll keep an eye out. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming and um, speaking with me. Like I said, it was an absolute pleasure reading your book as well. And I obviously encourage everyone to give it a read. Again, it's called The Puzzle Prison Order, Why Life Behind Bars Varies Around the World. And yeah, thank you. This was really interesting and such a pleasure, pleasure uh, speaking with you. Great. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Bitchduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.